Good morning. Let me say what an honor and a pleasure it is to be with you again in Harvard's Memorial Church. I am very grateful to Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton and to Reverend Dr. Lucy Forrester Smith for inviting me and for being such wonderful colleagues here at Harvard. And I'm grateful to your ministry fellow, Elena Copenhaver, and to Patrick, whom I've just met today, Daniel, to all of, uh, to all of the wonderful people who help make this the place it is, to all of you. As you may know, Harvard Hillel, the Jewish center on Harvard's campus that I have the honor of directing, holds some of our high holiday services right here in your lovely sanctuary on Harvard Yard. But truly, to visit the Memorial Church is to come see all of you. Being such a wonderful community and congregation, you don't need me to tell you that a building is perhaps the least of things a church may be, while in the beautiful fellowship and friendship and hospitality that you create here, you manifest some of the greatest. Speaking of the things a church may be, um, something odd happened on the way to this sermon, which was that as the date of this visit drew near and was discovered to be occurring on this particular day in your liturgical calendar, I began to receive somewhat worried apologies for your having managed to invite a rabbi and a leader of Harvard's Jewish community to come visit with you precisely on Christ the King Sunday. So let me reassure you that I fully expect upon entering a church to meet people who consider Jesus as divine king, something you should know you are at least strongly rumored to do all year long. And <laughs> if I were uncomfortable with the thought of being around that, or if I thought that it precluded useful conversation between us, then I would politely have declined your gracious invitation irrespective of the day, which as we know all too well is one of the least and mildest of responses human beings may offer when our regnant ideas differ. Our world today is all too full of explosive collisions of ideologies, which might argue for steering clear and giving one another's visions a wide berth. But I tend to like what happens at Harvard when we come together for all our differences and not effacing them and encounter one another. And that brings me to the opportunity that being with you on this day affords to think together about the delights and the dangers of sovereignty. For all that a church or a people or a covenant or a collective spirituality transcends physical space, there is, in both our traditions and in others, the aspiration of creating a divine domain or realm your tradition and mine and others inherit and cherish a desire to invite that which is highest and most holy to find a dwelling place in our midst and in ourselves in which to be sovereign. Upon entering a church, I fully expect to encounter people who hope and aim to realize on earth a kingdom of heaven. And if I thought that such an aspiration on your part could only translate for me into the brunt that those of us who differ from you have borne of militancy to impose Christian sovereignty and to extirpate all else, then certainly I would not be here. And if you had such devastating designs, I trust, you would not have invited me. The fact that you have invited me as a rabbi to be here with you several times now and have welcomed and taken an interest in me as who I am suggests 
that in some way you and all of us at Harvard manage an impressive spiritual feat. You are okay with your highest and holiest reality not governing my identity. But is that all right theologically? Or have I just projected upon you an utter blasphemy precisely where sovereignty is concerned, maneuvering you presumptuously into my suggestion that you can accept that your God concept will not be what it is for you to someone else? Is there not something backhanded in that kind of compliment, as though entailed in acceptance of one's neighbors were a failure on one's part to take seriously who or whom one identifies as king? In the time that I have with you this morning, let me explain how I'm not suggesting any kind of failure on your part at all, but rather a truly high and very deep level of spiritual attainment of a kind that is desperately needed in the world of our times. First of all, though, let's take a moment to be honest about how uncomfortable we all probably are with the notion of kingship, even leaving aside the gender in the word. After all, here we sit in the very cradle of the American Revolution in which, as Harvard scholar Eric Nelson has reminded us, the United States receives through Thomas Paine's common sense a disdain of earthly monarchy bequeathed to Paine by Milton, and Milton, as Professor Nelson quite thoroughly demonstrates, inherits his distaste for monarchy in turn through a European Protestant fascination with rabbinic literature, which Milton quotes explicitly. According to the rabbinic account that Milton and Paine adopt, the people are punished having asked for a king by receiving exactly what they have requested. Listen to the voice of the people in all they say to you, says God to the prophet Samuel, for they have not rejected you in asking for a king, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to a rabbinic understanding of that passage, earthly monarchy is dangerously tantamount to idolatry, human tyranny being a far cry from divine sovereignty. That is precisely the argument for rejecting monarchy that this country inherits from Milton by way of pain, and the fact that the American Republic can, then and still, come dangerously close to imbuing its presidency with kingly powers, precisely because they never are called monarchy, is another matter, and if you haven't yet, you really should read Eric's book. But for all our theological and narrative differences, our traditions have in common that when it comes to ascribing kinship, we are both ultimately only really comfortable ascribing that kind of majesty to God. Your tradition and mine both consider the ability to impose transcendent ideals upon terrestrial realities to be a divine capability one toward which human beings may strive, but which we seldom, if ever, or only in part, attain. In your tradition, the Word was with God in the beginning, and was God, and became flesh, and dwelt among the people. In my tradition, the Blessed Holy One looked into the Torah and created the world, and Israelites ever since have worked to practice the same kind of translation to make divine Word manifest as the life of a people. Both our traditions acknowledge that we have a long and perhaps never-ending distance to go if we are ever to realize humanity as God's reflection in this world. The fact that even in a place as mindfully made as Harvard, the world we shape falls so short of the ideals we most cherish 
should be some indication of the magnitude of the challenge when huge numbers of students experience sexual violence and whole segments of the community wonder whether they too are truly Harvard, then it is clear we have a long, long way to go. But isn't that what religion is for, someone may suggest, with scriptural blueprints by way of architects' designs and copious commentaries by way of contractors' annotations to tell us exactly how to construct the chambers and the passageways and the palaces and the plazas of our very own heaven on earth for everyone? consider how much trouble we get in when we think so. What horrors we have perpetrated on one another trying to press each other into the service of our various visions or out of them entirely. I suspect that may be exactly the kind of danger Jesus is getting at when he answers Pilate's question, are you king of the Jews, by saying to the prefect of the Roman emperor, in effect, are we talking about your kind of monarchy? Perhaps the danger is so great that we should resolve that true kingdoms of heaven, for the sake of their holiness and purity, must remain forever in their heavens. Perhaps the trouble starts precisely where the ethereal rubber, so to speak, hits the earthly road, so perhaps the secret to spiritual success is not to be earthly at all, or as little as possible. We've tried that too in our respective traditions from time to time. On the upside, so long as the sacred realm is a world somewhere else or a world yet to be only prayed for and imagined, it can be as ideal as one likes because it is solely a kingdom of the mind, a domain of dreams. On the downside, devote yourself strictly to a kingdom so situated and nothing much gets done down here on earth where there are urgent needs. The Jerusalem above and the kingdom of heaven and the world to come tend to be very tidy places. In fact, the word that comes to mind is sterile, nothing to contaminate the vision, nothing to infect the spirit with anything foreign to the supposed one true concept. There is, in fact, in such realms, nothing especially human to speak of, which makes me wonder why anyone supposes we are meant to achieve that kind of place. But some evidently would like the world that way. What else could we possibly be aiming for? Well, here's another vision. There are times in the real Jerusalem of today for all its troubles when one can stand in one spot and hear the trumpeting of ram's horns and Moisen's calls to prayer and the pealing of church bells all at once. There are actually many spots like that. Um, we know all too well how some consider that a cacophony in need of cleaning up, but I prefer to think it might be instead the way God likes to hear the world. It seems to be God's will that there be many religions, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once observed. Aside from preserving and defending such a picture, what can sovereignty mean in such a realm? Who exactly is the divine sovereign of that kind of realm, and where exactly is such a sovereign enthroned. More and more I believe that the only territory in which any of us truly can cause the divine to reign is the kingdom of one's own heart. And more and more I believe that the more truly we affect that kind of coronation, and perhaps this is the test of it, the more love and acceptance we have for one another or to borrow words from the rabbinic liturgy, the more we receive the yoke of the kingdom of heaven from one another, and the more we give permission to one another 
to sanctify the divine in peace of spirit, each and every voice being distinct, beloved, and essential. In short, the awareness that follows or can follow from the experience of enthronement of the divine in one's own heart is that there must be exactly as many conceptions of the divine sovereign as there are hearts, as there are true subjects of divine sovereignty. Am I describing a picture of perfect loneliness and complete solipsism, each of us isolated in her or his own separate sacred reality, ever alien from one another? On the contrary, I hope I am describing a picture of intense and exciting communication, and let that be my prayer today. For every codex penned in a monk's cell and every dream whispered on a lover's pillow, For every sacred cantata inscribed upon a musical saf, soli deo gloria, every hymn shared and every holy chant intoned, to add to a grand adventure, a vision of visions, a song of songs, from which we all can learn, all of us according to our own hearts, without being effaced but being inspired. For if we learn to live that way, then as to sovereignty, the earth will be so full of knowing the Eternal One as waters cover the sea. May it be so.